We're going to read first from the Word of God, which we know and we trust will instruct our hearts and our minds for however long. Uh, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 21, if you have your Bibles with you, and then we will flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. And soon as, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab learned that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that, he had, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see also that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give you judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. 
So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us over time, whether that's a short time, whether it's many years, that you are faithful, that you are steadfast. We thank you that you have given us your word to instruct us, to display for us your glory and your steadfastness. We ask that you would do that again now. I ask that any words that come out of my mouth that are not of you would be quickly and easily forgotten. Would you teach our hearts today, Jesus? Amen. Well, I didn't know any of those. I didn't know that was going to be the topic for our corporate prayer. I didn't know that those were going to those announcements about the, the refugee family were going to be made. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, dang, it's time for me or my wife to go get my kids. And, and also, they just talked about what I was going to talk about. So what am I supposed to do? Uh, and, but I think that it's as much as, as our hearts might have been touched in those moments, in those prayers for Ukraine, in the story of the Afghan family that our church is going to come around, it's important for us to stop for a second and think about what's really happening. Think about where are these motivations coming from. Uh, think about why we're doing this. And then as Paul was saying in, in 2 Corinthians, how do we make sure that we follow through with this uh, as individuals and corporately as a church? Um, in, in Kings, in the story of Nabus Vineyard, which you may or may not be familiar with, uh, what we see with Ahab in his response to Naboth is, is vexation, is frustration, is kind of sadness or depression. And it's because Ahab is greedy. Um, he wants this thing for himself. And it seems like he's making Naboth a fair offer, right? He tells him, hey, I'll give you a better vineyard. I'll pay you money. And Naboth says, no. And the, the reality of what Naboth says, and, you, and if you go back and look at the text, you'll see that Ahab actually misquotes Naboth when he's telling his wife, what Naboth said. What Naboth said is, the Lord forbid. He's saying that because the Lord forbid it in the law that he should give up his inheritance. Not so long ago, uh, this land was given to the people of God by God. And he told them, hey, you can't get rid of this inheritance. You can't be selling this for your own profit. Um, Jezebel, of course, takes things to a whole, whole other level, right? Uh, if you know that name, she's already got a reputation. Uh, if you're like me and you grew up in the South, you might have heard people using that word, thinking that it's somehow less slanderous because it's in the Bible, calling people a Jezebel. Um, but she takes it to a whole other level. And this attitude of hers that she can just take some kind of action and take what she wants for her, for her husband, for her household, uh, is greed. It's greedy and it's ultimately it's murderous. Um, we have other questions like why are the elders 
and the leaders of this town so willing to go along with this plan. Like, who cares if the letter came from the king or not? You're going to falsify all these accusations, then you're going to kill a guy. We'll actually see later in the book that his two sons were also killed. Um, and what I would say, it, it doesn't say it explicitly in here, is that probably those leaders are willing to do this because they also are greedy. Because they're getting these orders from someone who has more money, more power, more possessions than they do. And they want to make sure that they keep what they have. Uh, hopefully gain a little bit more too. So they're all greedy. We're in the Seven Deadly Sins series, right? We're talking about greed. Um, Naboth's response was, this isn't mine to give away like this. Because he has explicit instruction from God not to do that. In contrast to that, you have, um, you have Jezebel telling the town to go into a fast. That's also something according to the law. It would have been a sign of some sort of corporate sin or some sort of guilt on an area. Um, you have her saying, get two witnesses to come against Naboth, also something according to the law. So you have Naboth, trying to follow the word of God, and he's killed. You have all these other people trying to pretend to follow the word of God and seemingly getting away with it, more or less. Now, we'll see later, if you, if you read the next few verses, you'll see that Ahab repents, and God has a little bit of mercy on him and says, like, okay, the destruction won't come in your days. It'll come in your son's days, because what you have done is murderous and unacceptable, um, when we're willing to put God first ahead of the things that he has given us, what we're saying is, is that we're unwilling to act unlike God. Now, that sounds tricky. We're not willing to act unlike God in order to get things. And Jezebel and Ahab have, have gone in acting like God. They have taken two decisions that are reserved for God, the time and place of a person's death into their own hands, and the land which God explicitly gave his people into their hands. And God has given us some authority uh, to make kind of actions like this, right? We, we're allowed to make decisions regarding our family, our finances, our work, the place we live, all kinds of different things. We're we're given that authority. The problem is when we come in and start acting unlike God over those things. And we have to be careful not to let our greed, what's really greed in our hearts, be camouflaged by this idea of stewardship. Um, because we are stewards, yes. It is important that we take good care of what God has entrusted to us. But God doesn't act in a greedy fashion. God is not greedy. God acts for his glory, yes, but he acts for your good. And what we so quickly forget and are reminded of uh, early in this Lenten season is that our need goes far, far deeper, far, far further than we like to admit. We grow... I think, a custom in our time and place to having, frankly, too much. 
to where even giving up these extravagant things, like in the time of Lent, uh, and this isn't a judgment if you're giving any of these things up for Lent, but to where giving up something like dessert or putting off the purchase of something newer or, um, or whatever it might be, these are extravagant things. And that these decisions at times can deceive us into thinking that we are acting more sacrificially than we really are. Um, there's a, a story told in many places, written in a lot of places, uh, that you may have heard about an Indian guru and his disciple. So this, this guru is training his disciple, and he decides he's going to go on, on a long journey. He doesn't know if or when he's going to return. He feels confident, though, in his disciple's spiritual uh, maturity, for lack of a better term, to leave him. He says, hey, you know what to do. Um, so this disciple... He, he begs every day. He begs for all that he gets. All he actually owns is a loincloth. And this loincloth, he washes, washes it every day. He comes back one day and sees that the rats are eating his loincloth. And so he begs for another loincloth from the people of the town. They give him a loincloth. And that one, too, gets eaten by rats. So he says, all right, got to get a cat. So he gets a cat, which takes care of the rat problem. Then he has to feed the cat. Um, and so he starts begging for milk. The people give him milk. He says, all right, I can't get enough milk this way. This doesn't seem right. I'm going to get a cow. So he gets a cow so he can have plenty of milk. Well, he has to feed his cow, right? Cows eat way more than cats. He has to get fodder. He begs for fodder from the people of the town for his cow. So he can't keep up with that demand by begging either. So he decides to till the land around his little mud hut and begin planting. He tills, he plants, but soon he finds he has no time for meditation or contemplation. So he hires servants to tend to his farm. But then overseeing the labors also becomes a chore. So he marries a wife so that he can have somebody manage all of this stuff that's happening. And before you know it, he becomes the, the wealthiest man in his village. Sometime later, the guru is traveling back through this part of the country. And he stops in the village. And imagine his surprise when he sees where there was this little mud hut, a palace, surrounded by vineyards and all sorts of, man, uh, all sorts of things. And what is the meaning of this? The guru says to his disciple, and he says, Guru, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe this, but it was the only way I could keep my loincloth. And isn't that right, though? Haven't you and I experienced the same sorts of things? I know right now I understand the cat thing. My cat was after a mouse in our house today, literally this morning. Um, which is an aside, but, but I feel like having that cat has, has made there be more things that we have to have and more things that really my wife has to do because I don't like the cat, so she does all the cat stuff. <laughs> but inevitably, whatever decisions we're making, we begin wondering again, when and how am I going to get more money? It's the truth. We, um, we look at this uh, 
we look at this world around us and we ask, do I need a new car or a newer car? Yeah, I do, for whatever reason. Then we become obsessed with keeping it pristine, at least for a little while. Maybe not long if you have a bunch of kids. And we, we say we need a, a larger house, only to find that that larger house comes with a lot more responsibility, more cleaning, higher energy use. With the luxury of space comes more work and time. We make more money. Then we have to hire somebody to deal with our taxes. Whatever the route is that we go, we inevitably begin wondering, how do I get more? What we're, what we're meant to see partly in this story of Naboth is the wreckage that is caused by greed. Ahab is the king of Israel, okay? And what we're going to see, I hope, is a juxtaposition between the king of Israel and the true king of Israel, Jesus what comes out of Ahab's greed, in short, is absolute disaster. It is a waste of so many things and so many people and lives that could have been used for good. It's true that we're stewards. We can often choose when or how to some degree we make more money. But largely those circumstances depend on what God allows to come into our lives. Our most important task is not to toil. We see this throughout Scripture. Our task is not to toil for more money, but actually to figure out how do I give more out of what has been given to me. The problem of our time is this, is that we lack for nothing. And in lacking for nothing, we maybe lack everything. I'm concerned about this need man, I'm going to get on Amazon and order it. And that need is maybe not taken care of for two days, but in my mind, it's done. Did I even stop to consider if that was a real need? And many of us will do that thing. I, I will do that thing probably dozens of times this year. Many passages um, dealing with greed and its antidote, which is generosity, have often been skipped over, skimmed over, translated to soften the blow, or assumed to not be applicable. But look, in, at Valley Hope, and I hope in the church at large, we don't believe that. We believe that all scripture is edifying and applicable to us now. We confess that, uh, that we are supposed to do, supposed to do, not that we always do, we're supposed to do the things that Christ sets before us. And if we assume that, that we are not, you name it, adulterous, wrathful, greedy, murderous in our thoughts and intents, we need to stop, we need to check ourselves, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to check us, ask our brother and sister to check us, one of the, the easiest ways, I know for me, I think for probably many of us, to kind of get around these passages that seem to be directly indicating that I should give more of my money and stuff is to just say, look, look at my bank account, look at my house, that's not me. 
I'm not, I'm not rich like that person. Um, and you might be right. You might be poor relative to someone sitting near you. You might be poor uh, by U.S. government standards. Um, but let me offer a loving warning to you if that's your inclination. And it's actually the same warning that goes to you if you feel or know that you are rich. It's to guard your heart. It's to pay attention to your inclinations when it comes to things of money. In her discussion on greed, Rebecca DeYoung cites uh, John Casey and the ascetic, having written, just as the words of the gospel declare that even those who are not soiled in body have committed adultery in their heart, it is also possible for those who are not weighed down by money to be condemned along with the greedy for their disposition and attitude. For it was the opportunity to possess that they lacked and not the desire. What we see today in the world with regards to money, like it looks different in its manifestations, right? But the, the root, the truth of our situation as humankind is the same, that with the accumulation of money and stuff, we are quick to forget God and think that we're in control of things. Likewise, when we are lacking money and stuff, we are quick to forget God in pursuit of something else that will help us to feel in control again. The writer of Proverbs 13, uh, 30, uh, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Let me be clear. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with working hard and being compensated for that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with making a lot of money. I'm also not saying that being poor is without its dangers. And I am saying that money itself is not the problem. The problem is that our hearts are our want to chase after anything that they can get a hold of, especially money and the things that money affords, and try to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. And I get it. This is uncomfortable, right? How do you think I feel coming up here trying to talk about money and giving? Um, and I confess, this is me too, okay? I'm not as generous as I ought to be. And that's not okay. The rub for us in, in our practice comes in trying to discern what is excess and what is uh, provision. We have to ask ourselves real questions. What is true need? What am I training my heart in? How do I really behave uh, in relation to money? What am I teaching my kids and the people around me with regard to money uh, by my actions? What good am I withholding from someone else who needs that money that God has allowed me to have? I suspect um, in, in its worst stages, greed really only goes so far out as to be concerned for our own families because we know 
that their well-being reflects on us. That doesn't sound right, does it? That, that maybe in some way I care about my family's provision, my loved one's provision, because it reflects or has something to do with me. But that is the nature of greed. It is 100% self-centric. Greed makes the claim that things are mine. You hear it with Ahab. It's me. It's my money. You can hear him whining. It's like me and my money. That's what, that's what it makes me say. What Jesus will show us, what Jesus shows his disciples continuously, what he will show the rich young ruler, if you remember that story, who is willing to do anything except give up his money and possessions, he will show us that he is the center. A Jesus-centered view will hold him up in majesty and not money. A Jesus-centered life will sell and give up possessions and sacrifice money in order to follow after him. A Jesus-centered life will rightly perceive that Jesus, as creator and redeemer, is actually the owner of everything that I have. A Jesus-centered life will show us that we don't even belong to ourselves, our body or our soul. This is not the view, right, of Americans, of American culture, Western culture, secular culture. This is not the message that we get virtually drowned by every day. You're not the owner of you. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, you have been purchased with a price. And guess what? Jesus did not tithe his blood. He gave everything, all of it, for you and for me. If you and I are not willing, really willing to give in this generous sort of manner, again, whatever that particular thing may be, it may be more out of your paycheck, maybe that you have a yard sale, um, it may be that you choose not to purchase something, whatever that specific thing is that you're called to, if you and I are not willing to do that, it is because Jesus is not yet at the center of your economic life, of my economic life. If you and I continually sit back and accumulate money and things while 25,000 people die every day of hunger and related causes, that's just one example of a million injustices. If we are not willing to sacrifice in service to God and to others, we need to check ourselves. The standard for us as followers of Jesus, if the cross is at the center of our financial, the cross is at the center of our economic lives, is that we give financially, materially, in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that does not feel quite right, in a way that makes me wonder, is this okay? Am I going to have enough? We are to give in a way that reflects the character of Jesus Christ himself. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to guilt you into impoverishing yourself. What I want is to encourage you to impoverish yourself 
because that's how Jesus operates. This is how Jesus has instructed us to live. And it's as simple as that. If it was up to me, yeah, I'd say, get all that you can and enjoy it. That's simply, distinctly not what Jesus has told us to do. And this generous living is is what we see the early church doing here in 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul spends quite a bit of time across different books talking about this specific, specific situation where the church in Judea is struggling um, and he's appealing to some of the Greek churches to help them. And some of them, like the church in Macedonia, is also suffering, is also impoverished. And yet they, by the grace of God, say, hey, let us help. And they give generously. In his evaluation of Paul's work on this, John Stott will rightly assert that this is not some mundane situation where like, well, these people kind of need something. Let me give a, let me give a little handout. Um, but rather, Stott will say that Paul views this um, that as it's due to the grace of, uh, grace of God, they're giving because of the cross of Christ, they're giving in the unity of the Spirit, that this is actually a profound example of Trinitarian theology applied to the practice of the believers. In Christ, you and I, who are not just poor, or spiritually dead, have been made alive and rich. What is required is that we give out of the riches of the Father's love for us. And by no means is this monetary giving, is this generosity limited to the church. God help us if it is. But in the church, it's an affirmation, is an encouragement of that unity of the Holy Spirit. We support our church, we support one another, so that we may all collectively scatter the good gifts of our king. And in our scattering, what we actually see is rather than things kind of falling away or dissipating, much, much more is brought in. You and I respond when we are cared for, and so will our neighbors. Um, The other day, I, I read a a brief news story kind of following the stuff on Ukraine, and, and it was talking specifically about the Ukrainians coming into Germany. And they were saying that some of these people, this mentality of the Germans rushing to, to help the refugees, they were hearkening back to what, what Ben mentioned, you know, seven years ago when the Syrian refugees flooded in. And at that time, Angela Merkel had this slogan kind of that we can cope and that that is what these, some of these German people are hearkening back to, is we can cope to let a million people into our country and take care of them. What you don't so often see in these stories is that it's these small groups, it's these local bodies, these grassroots churches and the like, who are filling in lots of gaps where no government ever could. They're filling in the gaps of relationship that no government ever could. And we say, as believers, that we not only can cope, we can thrive. We can thrive in this mindset because it's what we were created to be. We can thrive because we're indwelled by the same Holy Spirit sent to us by Jesus, who did not tithe his blood, but gave all. 
We might run up still against some questions. How much do I give? Where do I give? Who do I give to? Um, how do I get started? By now, I hope to have convinced you that the question of how much is not the right question. Um, the question is, why do I not want to give more? There is a, a false identity that's developed in greed where I actually kind of believe that others are judging me because I'm judging them based on money or what they have. Um, but again, greed is self-centric. I don't actually care about what you have. I care about how I can get more for myself. And isn't this the twistedness of our sin, that we would view others in this way, 100% centered on ourselves again. When my thoughts are on what others have, because I want more for myself, again, I am not viewing myself in my poverty apart from Christ. This, this last week, um, some words from an old hymn had been in, in my mind, um, so I'll read you just a few lines of an old hymn called In the Secret of His Presence. I tell him all my doubts, my griefs and fears, oh how patiently he listens, and my drooping soul he cheers. Do you think he ne'er reproves me? What a false friend he would be if he never, never told me of the sins which he must see. In this season of Lent, we are remembering that our lives are to be full of repentance. In repentance, we confess, we pray to God, confessing to him that our thoughts, our words, our actions are at war against him. We fast. We sacrifice things that we view as sustenance, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the only one who truly sustains. We give, training our hearts and our inclinations, blessing our neighbors, not in order to earn God's goodness, but out of the abundance that he has already set upon us. The things that are convicting in self-reflection, in self-examination, do not mark you and I for guilt. They're not condemnation. They're not despair. They're invitations for us to be set free. This is freedom, that gratitude and generosity, that poorness in spirit would destroy greed in our lives. And each one of us has to consider where on this spectrum of greed and generosity we are. If you're like me, you might go from one end to the other and back in a day. You might say, how is it that God simultaneously gives me all of this and requires everything of me? Does God really require this of me? Like, Jesus is God, right? He doesn't actually expect me to try to be as sacrificial as he is. You might think, hey, this is just another sermon on giving in a church, and I'm just trying to, to kind of camouflage uh, the request to give more to your church. You might say, I'm not sure that I'm really up for any 10% or anything like that, much less giving sacrificially to where I feel impoverished. 
you might say, yeah, that's right, but I'm not sure how to get started. You might say, honestly, I don't know how I can be more generous. And maybe you're being earnest in that. To all of you, I proclaim the good news of Jesus, that he has already paid your debt. And this worth more than all the toil and earnings in the history of the world. Were you and I to catastrophically lose everything that we had today? Or were you to come into some inordinate amount of money? God the Father would view you no differently. He loves you. And that's what you and I are after when we're making that Amazon purchase, when we're trying to figure out how we can have something bigger and nicer and newer, when we're seeking after money. What we actually want to hear is that the Father loves us. And he does. He loves you. What makes the gospel so hard to believe is not some philosophical argument against the existence of a personal God. It is not um, the strangeness of a virgin birth or any of these other things. What makes the gospel so, so hard to believe is that the God of all things would love us this way and would go to such lengths to affirm it over and over again. But here you and I are, in front of a cross, surrounded by our brothers and sisters, surrounded by gorgeous mountains, and our belly's not empty. If you're here today, and you don't know that Jesus loves you like this, let me affirm to you, you are here today because he loves you like this. And he wants you to come closer. He wants to wrap his warm and loving arms around you and let you know that everything is going to be okay. And if this is our position in the arms of our Father, how can we do anything else but respond with everything that we have? Let's pray. Father, we, I, not nearly as generous as you. I am not nearly as generous as I ought to be, not nearly as generous as I could be. Father, even surrounded by these people who I love, who I call my family, I confess that I am far more concerned with my own state in the world with what I have, with what I feel like I need, rather than what they have, what they may need. To say nothing of the many strangers around me in greater need. Jesus, would you work on our hearts and our minds? Would you remind us persistently of the generosity of your blood which has covered over everything. You have provided everything in your goodness, Jesus. Would you help us to be willing to provide for each other? Would you not let us walk away feeling somehow better in our hearts because of the good things we might want to do or the good things we might do this week? But would you challenge us 
Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Let our lives be a sacrifice. In your name we pray.